Mysterious Circumstances is an American Crimecast production. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Hey everybody, it's Justin. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances podcast for another episode of a classic whodunit mystery. Um, I do have to apologize. I really wanted to get this episode out uh, a week earlier just to give you guys a nice surprise because my last episode was a little bit shorter. That obviously did not happen. Uh, I got pretty busy with work. Uh... And this case has a lot of shit going on. And we will be talking today about the murder of Julia Wallace, which literally is considered one of the greatest murder mysteries of the 20th century. It is definitely in a top five, if not the top ten of pretty much any any murder mystery list you can imagine. Uh, it is a classic whodunit mystery. First, before we get to that, let's... Yeah, I gotta give some thanks for some five-star reviews. First off would be CM Jobber from the UK. I appreciate that five-star rating, and I'm glad that uh, you're taking the time to listen to some of the some of the smaller fish in the sea, like myself. I appreciate that. Uh, glad you enjoy the podcast. Uh, next one is uh, somebody named Dog's Breath from Daniel Oaks, New York, USA. I'm very appreciative of the five-star rating. Thank you very much. Uh, the next one is somebody named Indy Oldie from USA, and I appreciate that five-star rating. Uh, glad you enjoy the podcast as well. Uh, the next one would be to Kimberly Williams from Massachusetts, USA. Uh, thank you very much for that rating, and it is greatly appreciated. Uh, next one is Yazabo from Ireland. Thank you very much for the five-star rating. Uh, there are a lot of recent reviews on the Facebook page, so I appreciate everybody who who uh, goes to the Facebook page and reviews as well. And Facebook page is very active now, and I'm really happy about that because we got some interaction going on. And if any of you are interested, I do have a group on Facebook as well. It's called Mysterious Circumstances Group. I think there's only like four of us in there right now. But uh, once I get enough people in there, what I'm going to start doing is taking polls on which episodes I will do next, because this podcast is about the listeners, and it's about what you guys want to hear. So I'm trying to get everybody more involved on what they might want to do. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to put my own mysteries in there uh, when I can, but yeah, I mean, this... This is centered around all you listeners, and speaking of which, I have a listener up in Canada named uh, named Aaron McDonald, who I actually am trying to enlist to co-host an episode with me. Um, we're gonna do a uh, a Canadian mystery. We haven't. I don't. I'm pretty sure we've decided on one, but I don't think we're 100. percent And if this goes all well, I would actually like to do this a little bit more often. And uh, that would go along with interviews as well and stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to put together a couple different interviews. One would be an author of a uh, book. I'm not going to say anything about it yet because it's not finalized or anything. But but I don't know. I'm trying to get you listeners involved. So if anybody is interested in maybe co-hosting an episode with me about one of their favorite mysteries, one of your favorite mysteries, 
uh, shoot me an email, say something on the Facebook page, join the group, get a hold of me somehow, and maybe we can hash out some details and do it, because I know you guys love mysteries, and I know you guys wouldn't mind uh, maybe maybe co-hosting one with me, so I figured that, like I said, this podcast is for you listeners, and I think it'd be cool to get some of you involved, and yeah, I can guarantee you'll see no other fucking podcast do that. But with all that being said, let's go ahead and get on with the mystery for tonight. Uh, sitting here in my new squeaky chair and looking at some notes. Let's see what we got here. When I said this is a classic murder mystery, it truly is. It is a straight up whodunit mystery. So there's going to be a lot of details here. So keep your guys' ears peeled because there's going to be a lot of details that you're going to have to listen to. So just... Be aware, pay attention, because there's a lot of shit going on here in this case. You will also not hear other podcasts do this, but uh, Thinking Sideways, one of my favorite podcasts, actually does a phenomenal job on on their episode based on the death of Julia Wallace. They did a great job on that. Um, much props to it. I listened to it a couple times to get a few details that I had not found myself and I actually got a few details that they did not mention, so it should be pretty interesting. But with that being said, let's get on with the show. Alright, so let's do a little background here on William Herbert Wallace, who is the husband of Julia Wallace, and the man who was originally suspected of the murder. He was actually tried, convicted, and later he was uh, let off because of the lack of evidence. All the evidence against him was pretty much circumstantial. Um, well, William Wallace, William Herbert Wallace, was born August 29th, 1878, and he passed away on February 26th, 1933. He was born in Millam, or Millam, uh, Cumberland, and he ended up leaving school at about the age of 14 to uh, get his apprenticeship as a draper's assistant. I've had a lot of boring jobs in my life, but I don't know why anybody would purposely want to do that. But at the time, I'm sure it probably wasn't a bad job. He ended up getting his apprenticeship, and in 1903, he transferred to Calcutta, India, where he worked for a couple years. Um, in about 1905, uh, he ended up moving to China with his uh, where he had a brother who lived there and also worked there he ended up moving there and uh, worked there for a couple years and in about 1907 because he was having a lot of kidney problems he ended up going back to England after that now he uh, eventually ended up having one of his kidneys removed as well um, now there's not really too much said for about the next four years but in 1911, he got a job as an election agent in the Liberal Party. Now, this is when he actually met Julia Dennis, which would later become Julia Wallace. And in 1914, they actually got married. At about the start of World War One, he lost his job because they just basically did away with, you know, a lot of jobs uh, for the government. So he ended up getting a job, his dad helped him get a job as an insurance collections agent uh, with Prudential and he ended up moving to Liverpool in 1915. For the time, 
Wallace was considered a little bit different because he actually had a lot of different interests and hobbies. I particularly can't say I find that odd because I have a shitload of hobbies. I do a lot of different stuff. So maybe back then it was a little bit more strange, but I don't think so. But uh, in the 1920s, he actually lectured part-time at uh, Liverpool Technical College. Um, and that he was uh, he lectured on chemistry. He was actually a, a fairly well, pretty self-taught, pretty good self-taught uh, chemist. And his other hobbies included uh, botany and chess. And he actually took uh, violin lessons because him and Julia would have uh, musical evenings at their home alone as uh, she was actually a very accomplished pianist from everything I could everything I could hear she was actually very talented that is neither confirmed nor denied though because I've never heard any of her shit but you know with all the with all the back back knowledge out of the way I mean yeah that's not really going into too much detail the only details that you really need to know I guess about his past or that you know, this is how he got where he was, how he met Julia. Now, as for Julia, there is really nothing, like, background-wise information on this woman at all. It uh, was pretty astonishing, to be honest with you. All, all that we know is that she was the daughter of a farmer. She was a great pianist, and she was actually um, quite a bit older than than Wallace, uh, I believe, by 17 years. Could have been... 15, 16, 17 years, but for the time that was extremely odd because usually it uh, worked the other way around, so a lot of people did find that odd. I actually found that quite odd too. And personality-wise, William Herbert Wallace was actually known as very meek. He was very just quiet, reserved, never really got excited about anything, to be honest with you. Um, from everything that I've read, that was pretty much his personality, and Julia was actually the same way. Uh, she really didn't go out much, didn't really do shit, so I guess they made a pretty good couple. And from all accounts, they were a pretty happy couple, but, you know, times back then are probably a lot different than now. Uh, they were just very well reserved, and they enjoyed hanging out at home. He got out when he could. She really supposedly didn't do too much. We'll get into the theory in the theory section. We'll get into maybe what she did while he was out and about. You know, as for their marriage, they were supposedly pretty happy, never really fought or anything like that. So, you know, that'll that'll definitely play a factor when we come to the facts and theories section. With that being said, and obviously they had no kids, they did not have any kids. Um, so there's nothing like that in the equation. So now you have a little bit of backstory. Let's get into the day before the crime. Let me take a little drink of my beer here. All right, anyway. On Monday, January 19th, 1931, Wallace was heading to the uh, Liverpool Central Chess Club. Now, it wasn't actually just for chess. There were a lot of different things that met at this building, chess being one of them. Uh, he actually had a scheduled chess game there that evening at about 25 minutes before he got there at exactly 7:20 p.m. there was a call to the chess club for Wallace from a man known as R.M. Qualtro now the message read meet that he wanted to meet Wallace to talk about insurance 
because like I said, he was a fusion insur insurance agent. Uh, he wanted to meet him the following night at 7.30 p.m. sharp at 25 Menlove Gardens East. Now, that is an actual address. There is a... I actually Google mapped the shit out of it. There's a north, south, and west, but in all actuality, there is no 25 Menlove Gardens East. Now, like I said, that call was placed at exactly 7.20 p.m., about 25 minutes before Wallace actually arrived. He thought, he kind of asked around uh, at the chess club a little bit, asked if anybody, you know, had really been around that uh, that particular area of town as it was uh, towards the south end of town. He was more towards the northwest, I believe. Nobody was really familiar, too familiar with it, but he just kind of shook it off as like, oh well, I'm going to go make some money. So he ended up you know, playing his chess match or whatever. And he goes home. Now, here's where we're actually going to get into some of the details of the crime. Now, this is the timeline that we have. Now, on Tuesday, January 20th, 1931, the milk boy collects money from Julia Wallace at between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. Now, the reason we know this time is because the milk boy, as he was walking, actually noted the time on a church clock. So we do know that it was between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m., and yes, he did testify in court that this was the specific time. Now, in order to make the trip on time to Menlove Gardens East... Let's look at some transit shit here. Some transit car schedules and stuff like that. From Wallace's home to Menlove Gardens West is 4.7 miles, which is about 7.5 kilometers. Now, in a vehicle that you are actually driving, it would take roughly about 15 minutes. Now, if you're going by transit, it would be anywhere from 40 to 46 minutes. Now, if you're walking, this is going to be about an hour and a half. Wallace took the transit, so our time frame of travel from home to Menlove Gardens West is roughly between 40 to 46 minutes. He would have had to left right at about 6.45, 6.50 to make it there on time, and he was not going to be late. He gets there, and he's very adamant, apparently, on the transit from what I've heard or what I've read about making it there on time some people eventually thought this was extremely suspicious because he was very very adamant about the bus driver about what time it was you know trying to maybe create a quasi alibi so that people remembered him and knew exactly what time he was asking questions or on the bus little fact for you in the late 20s, early 30s in England they were suffering a depression just like the US was at one point in time in certain areas of England, anywhere from 69 to 71% of the population was out of work. At the depths of the Depression in England in about 1932, there were seven, or not seven, I take that back, three and a half million people that were unemployed. So when a guy has a chance to go make some money and he has to be there on time, 
at a time like this, you can bet your ass you want to make it there on time. So that is a non-factor for me personally. We'll get more into that in the theory section, but I just we had to note that fact in there right there. So he actually gets to Men Love Gardens, and they drop him off like right right around the area. They pretty much wanted to get his ass off the bus. I'm pretty sure, or I shouldn't say bus. A transit's like a big uh, like VW van that they used to drive in the '60s, except it's a lot bigger. Um, so he gets there. And he finds out that there is no 25 Men Love Gardens East. There's only an, uh, a north, south, and a west, but no east. He gets there right at about 7.30. He's on time. And he's actually there for about 45 minutes or so. And he's asking every passerby he can find. He's like, where is this place? Could I be wrong? You know, there's got to be a 25 Men Love Gardens East. I got this message. He actually went as so far as asking a cop uh, about where Men Love Gardens East was. And uh, that cop actually testified that he was talking to him at roughly 745, give or take a few minutes, because... He actually made the cop check his watch to make sure on, on the time, you know, he, he was running, he was late. So basically he's freaking out thinking he's going to miss out on a job. And this was, like I said, at about 7.45. So he mills around for about another half an hour or so, eventually gives up, and he goes and heads home at about 8.15 p.m. He jumps back on the transit, gets home. At right about 8.45 p.m. And how we know that is because the Johnstons were actually leaving for the evening right at about that time. And they come outside because they live side by side in a townhouse. So, I mean, they actually shared a wall. But, yeah, they lived right next door to each other. And uh, the Johnstons are leaving, said they saw him at about right at about 8.45 p.m. standing outside his house. And they said that he looked <clears throat> confused and a little bit distant. Um, they asked him what was wrong, and he said that he just tried his key in the front door and the back door, and it would unlock. So he was standing there just kind of looking at his keys, you know. So they said, well, I mean, do you want us to help or anything? And he says, well, let me go try the back door again. So Wallace and the Johnstons go around to the back door, puts the key in, turns it, and it opens right up. So the Johnstons are thinking, well, you know, what the hell is going on? So Wallace walks in, and along with the Johnstons walk in too, and Wallace walks into the sitting room, which is where his wife Julia's body was found. He gets a lot of criticism for being this way, but he comes out of the room, and he just looks at the Johnstons, and he says, come see, she's been killed. No screaming, no crying, no anything. Calm as a cucumber, walks out, looks at them and says that. <clears throat> and what they actually walk in and see is what I'm going to describe to you right now. We're going to walk into the crime scene, okay? So we're going to walk in from the corner of the, of the door. It's basically the corner of the room where we're walking through the door in. And what I want you to do is take your arms, put them out at a 45 degree angle, and you have the right wall running parallel with your right arm, 
left wall running parallel with your left arm. What you're going to see to your left, immediate left, look down, there's a chair. Right beside that, right up against it, is a dresser with a huge mirror and various knickknacks on it. Beside that, in the corner, is another chair. Just a just a single little, it's a little bit bigger than the first chair. It's more suited for a corner position. Then on that back wall, you're going to see uh, a full fireplace. And then right beside that, going long ways to the right, is a pretty well-sized couch and that is actually up against the right back wall and then running parallel with your right arm on that wall is it looks like a piano and then another single chair that is on the side of you julia wallace's body is laying in the corner of the room by the fireplace and by where the couch is and she's lying face down at a strand angle towards you. She had been hit in the head uh, 11 times with a blunt object. And I, if I remember correctly, it was on the left side of her head where some of the, where some of the hits were. The blunt object is believed to be either a metal bar or a fire poker. And the reason that we believe this is because those two items were actually missing from the house. The fire poker has never been found. The metal bar actually was found, I believe, maybe 10 to 15 years ago. They said they, it fell out of one of the walls. So those two objects at this point in time are missing. So one of those is believed to be the murder weapon. Now, like I said, she's lying face down, like on her stomach, facing towards, you know, corner to corner. And, uh, I mean, there's... From the police report, from the Liverpool police report, they said that there were splatters of blood as high as seven feet. Now, looking at the actual pictures and all the pictures I found, I have seen no such things. So, we're going to go ahead and assume that's true because the picture that I am looking at, there is blood all under her head. So, we know it was a brutal attack. We, you know, we definitely know it was a brutal attack. Now, the weird thing is, too, is underneath her body is a partially burned raincoat, which is what they call a Macintosh. Now, this is January, okay, and this is probably a frequently used item because the temperature doesn't get too cold in England in January. Uh, my friend Ellie actually helped me out with this. The average temperature in England in January, right around the Liverpool area, is going to be like 5 degrees Celsius. That's not too That's not too bad. I wish it was that cold, or I wish it was that warm in the Midwest, to be perfectly fucking honest with you. It gets freezing here. It is feasible that this object could have been worn in the murder. Because the thing about it is, given the time frame, William Her Herbert Wallace did not have anything on him. He had no blood, no anything like that. He was totally clean. Now remember that when we get to the facts and theories section. So the Johnstons see this, you know, William Herbert Wallace sees this, and obviously the Liverpool police show up. Now like I was saying, England was in a depression at this point in time. So the Liverpool Police Department was pretty much cut in half. And at, the, at this point in time also, they also had like uh, their their crime scene photographers were just regular photographers. They were also journalists and whatever else. They would double up jobs or triple up jobs to make extra money. So there are no real professional pictures taken. 
Now, the guy who showed up to investigate the case, and I will say this before we go any further, at this point in time, the Liverpool Police Department was not, did not have a very good reputation. They were pretty shoddy at fucking best, but given the fact uh, during the Depression, them losing, having to cut half their force, they had to do what they had to do, so you can't really beat them up too bad. But the guy who initially showed up as the investigator, quote-unquote, um, didn't take any notes, didn't do anything like that. He just showed up, and basically what what we had was there were no forensics collected. The body temperature of the corpse was not actually taken. Now, initially, the time of death was estimated to be at right about 8 p.m., and they based this on rigor mortis. So in a further investigation, they were wondering how... They, they initially suspected Wallace right out the gate. Just right out the gate. And we've talked about this in some other cases that I've done before, like the, the Bob Crane case. They, they had their hearts set that Wallace did this. They, they go to check the drains to see how he washed up so quick. All the drains in the house were dry, except for a little spot of blood in the toilet. It was either in the toilet or on the toilet. I cannot remember correctly. You know, that's where the uh, the raincoat would come into play. We get to the actual court appearance. Like, before the court even happened, they they drilled, they drilled William Herbert Wallace. They, they knew he was the one that did it, and they went so far as to actually changing the time of death to be about 6 p.m., give or take an hour. Because everybody knew his timeline. It was very well documented. He let everybody know where he was, made sure they looked at their watches to see what time it was when he was on this little, you know, shenanigan looking for an imaginary place or whatever. So what the what they do is they change the time of death to 6 p.m., give or take an hour, and that would put him in the timeline of being able to actually commit this murder. He... One of, the, one of the bad things that Wallace did, whether he was in shock for a while or whatnot, but he was totally emotionless about this. He was totally, he did not show emotions. He was just, he seemed very cold-blooded. And that really did not help his situation. But at the end of the day, you got to have some, some viable evidence. And that, that was not around. So they adjusted the time of death. And when they actually get to court, he is actually uh, he is actually sentenced to hang. He is found guilty. The court deliberated for only about an hour. Of course, he's you know thinking he's going to hang for possibly a crime he did not commit. But on March 31st of that same year, the Court of Appeals actually overturned his sentence due to lack of evidence, which rightly should be so because it does not fit in that little window timeline. You know, initially, if she was killed at 8. Now, what they also did in court to get him convicted was they totally threw out the milk boy's testimony that he had collected milk money from Julia Wallace between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. that night. So, yeah, when his initial court case came up, they threw that testimony out, and that helped get him convicted. Do I agree with it? No. He, after after he ended up getting, you know, getting the appeal and everything, got let out of, out of jail, he actually still worked for Prudential for a couple years after that. 
and he actually died in, I believe, February of uh, 1933. So he only lived maybe a couple years after this uh, this murder took place, and he they took him out of the public eye. William Herbert Wallace had a really really hard time after after he got out and got you know got found innocent after the court of appeals overturned everything he would get death threats daily everybody knew who he was and everybody thought he was guilty and the reason like i said that they thought he was guilty was because of his demeanor after everything happened and in court that includes when he was in court he really didn't show any emotion but like i said the police department also really really had it out for this guy so they were running a huge smear campaign because at the end of the day here's the deal man you know if you're a cop you're sure somebody did it you don't want to fucking look bad and find out that they don't he was pretty much shunned okay he ended up moving out to the country uh and passing away within right about two years of this incident occurring so now that you have the crime scene let's tell you about some of the things that were missing from the house like i had mentioned earlier we had the fire poker and a metal rod not a hundred percent sure what the metal rod was but it ended up turning up about 80 years later or so and then like i said fire poker was never found and that's what they assume that the murder weapon was we can't really know uh too much for sure there was exactly four pounds from uh, a collection box that that went missing and what a collections box is is back then they would have the you know they'd go around on foot and collect all the insurance money and everything like that and they would put it in a box and i believe at the end of the week they would turn it into their boss so i mean it it didn't have to be locked it could have been like a cigar box it was just some somewhere to put put the money at that was gone and there was approximately four pounds in there in 1933 money or 1931 money excuse me even given the inflation rate that's not shit that's not worth killing anybody over so that that was uh missing and like i said there was a partially burned raincoat or what they referred to as a macintosh under her body partially burned at the end of the day while all this was going on, the Johnstons did not hear anything. It was They did not report hearing anything strange, anything at all. So obviously, you know, we got some stuff going on. And like I said, we're going to talk about that and some of the, some of the facts and theories. But first, we're going to get into a suspect here real quick. And this is going to go along with the facts section. All right. So the main suspect in this case, if we are not looking at William Herbert Wallace, is a gentleman by the name of Richard Gordon Perry. Now, how Richard Gordon Perry comes into play is he was a junior collections agent at Prudential that actually worked under Wallace. He knew Wallace and his wife. Now, at one point in time, Wallace had fallen ill. Richard Gordon Perry was the one out collecting all the money for him. At one point in time, uh, 30 pounds comes up missing from the collections and it is suspected that uh, Richard Perry was actually the one who you know took the 30 pounds and pocketed it himself and the reason they think this is because Perry was pretty much known as a playboy he liked to live a pretty lavish lifestyle when he didn't have the money and apparently his parents did have a little bit of money now what happened there's still debate on whether or not he was fired or you know just quit 
but when it was brought to light that the $30 was missing, his parents actually paid that missing 30 pounds. I said $30. It was 30 pounds. His parents say he actually borrowed money from his parents to pay off that debt. And shortly thereafter, he was not at Prudential anymore. Whether he was fired, whether he quit because he knew that Wallace knew, we don't know. Saying that he knows the Wallaces is a pretty is an assumption he would know where the collection box was because he was the one dropping the money off when wallace was sick to him and i'm sure he knew where the money was now if you're sitting there thinking well you know is four pounds worth committing a murder the thing about it is that you got to think about is not everybody paid daily or weekly some people paid monthly so if Perry was to go in there assuming that, you know, if he calculated right, there would be a lot of money in there, then, you know, possibly I think that could give him a little bit of motive to do it. That and the, there's a lot of other facts too. Like for one, all the doors and windows were locked as, you know, other than the fact that uh, Wallace, you know, the one that Wallace unlocked when he walked in. So all the windows and doors were locked absolutely no sign of a struggle neighbors did not hear anything and the way that the body is laying i mean obviously you would assume the attacker was right-handed because some of the uh some of the damage was done to the left side of the skull but the way her body is laying with the the like in front of the couch with the couch up against a wall there's no way nobody could sneak up behind her there there literally is like no room to walk right there so somebody had to have known julia wallace i mean that is a pretty safe assumption so i mean that does give him a little bit of motive definitely has the means to do it at this point in time now perry by the the liverpool uh, police standards was actually also a hardcore suspect but what happened was he had an alibi. His uh, fiance or girlfriend at the time said that she was with him all night. Now, she later recanted that statement and said that uh, this was actually years and years later. She actually said that she had lied to uh, that she did not know where he was that night. But it's hard to take this uh, this seriously because at this point in time, they had just broken up and it was not under good terms. So she could have been mad at the same time. Now, some of you are wondering, well, how, how much money, you know, could have been in there to actually kill somebody over? Well, when you have a personality of a quote-unquote rich kid that doesn't have money and basically looks like a total fucking douchebag, like at work, and it's one person's fault, you never know. That might be enough motive to do it. Now, it's also stated that Perry had access to a car. Whether he was borrowing his parents' car or had his own, he did have a vehicle. Now, it was stated by a mechanic that they saw Perry because uh, he brought his car to, uh, to the mechanic shop and he was power washing the car out. Now, the mechanic stated that he saw a bloody glove in the car. Now, why he wouldn't tell the cops this right away is beyond me. But the mechanic's excuse was because he tried tracking the car down because it actually took didn't take very long for him to power wash the car out. He actually did it as fast as he could. So the guy didn't have time to actually report it right then and there. So that is some pretty good facts for you right there. So Perry 
actually has motive in to a certain extent he has motive he also has some means he has a way to get around uh another thing that the cops brought up is that the call to the chess club the night before where the caller said his name was rm qualtro they said that actually occurred from a phone booth that was less than 400 yards away from the uh from the uh, wallace's home now i did not do the math on 400 yards into kilometers or whatever at this point in time unless the person running the switchboard specifically remembers that because you got to think at this point in time they had people running switchboards that connected you to calls so if the person if the person running the switchboard specifically remembered that call they literally have no way of actually knowing where that phone call came from now this was brought up in court because they were trying to say that oh he just called from a you know Wallace just called from a payphone before he went to the chess club in all actuality given the time factor yeah he could have but given the time factor of her actual death like from the initial 8 p.m. ruling and the fact that the milk boy saw her between 6:30 and 6:45 it's very very hard to believe that this could happen so that pretty much got pinned on Perry too because he was basically trying to make sure, you know, hey, where's he at? And yes, he did actually know um, some of William Wallace's hobbies because, like I said, uh, the building where they had the chess club was not just a chess club. It was a building for all kinds of, like, public functions. And there was actually a theater group that met there. And it is stated that, it is actually documented that... Uh, Richard Perry was a member of one of the theater groups, so he was actually often there, which you would assume, you know, it's pretty safe to assume that he's going to run into Wallace there, given that they were somewhat acquaintances, work-wise, and the fact that they would be at the same building every now and then. Now, depending on all the stuff that might be true and might not be true, Perry seems like a pretty likely candidate to be the person who actually committed this crime, if not for his alibi of his at the time girlfriend or fiance i can't remember um who later recanted her statement and said oh well you know i was just lying for him so it's hard telling what the truth actually might be in the perry section but given the fact that he had motive he had means that definitely puts him in a certain column by himself so another theory about william this we're going to turn our attention to william wallace now is that the raincoat that was found under the body was said to be his. Now, we don't know that for fact because I've read two certain things. They, I've read that it was his, and then I've read that it was the same kind as him, given the same color. So, we can't really say for certain, but basically the cop's theory on what actually happened was that he had stripped naked, he had come home, stripped naked, put on this raincoat, murdered his wife somehow the raincoat caught on fire got shoved under her body which you know i don't know if you're in a hurry and something's on fire which in all honesty like cleanup wise it's not a really bad idea i fucking hate saying that but if you're gonna do it strip down naked put on a raincoat because of easy fucking cleanup you don't have to worry about your clothes being messed up but you also got to think that all the drains in the house were dry with the exception of one spot of blood it was either in or on the toilet, like I had said. Now, knowing that, is it not too feasible to think he could have done it and then maybe washed up in the toilet? That is the only place that is going to have standing water that they wouldn't check. 
yeah, that's a great idea, but was William Herbert Wallace really smart enough to sit here and think about all this? you got to also think about motive here, too. He really had no motive except that it is stated in a couple, more than one, places that I have read, that there is a gentleman named Joseph Marsden. Now, Joseph Marsden comes into play because, apparently, she, being Julia Wallace, was paying him for sex. Now, I literally have read this theory a couple different places. How much I believe it, I don't know. At the time of her death, she was pretty freaking old. She was like 66 or 67. I don't know if there's any guy on the planet you can pay to do that shit, be perfectly honest with you. Not 100% on that. I know I wouldn't, but hey, you know, different strokes for different folks. But apparently, William Herbert Wallace knew this, and he didn't want to waste whatever short of time he had left being with his current wife. So he had her, he actually had her murdered. Now, whether he did it himself or not, there's other theories out there that he had actually paid Perry to do it, or he paid Perry to find somebody else to do it. We don't know. But the thing about it is, we know it's nothing about money, because at the end of the day, Julia Wallace's life insurance policy was 20 pounds. 20 pounds in 1931 today is like 1200 bucks. In American money, that would be about $1,500 life insurance policy. In my opinion, not worth killing somebody over. But minus the money, if you, you know, dislike your spouse that much and she's paying some young dude for sex, you know, maybe that'd give you enough motive. And they basically all form this, like I said, because of his cold reaction and the fact that he did not fit in the timeline. But you got to remember, this is cops, too, that are trying to straight up arrest somebody without really really investigating anybody else so you got to take that with a grain of salt but that is one of the theories out there is that she was paying this joseph marsden and joseph marsden actually was not really like i hate saying like a gigolo or anything like that he was actually getting ready to get married to a very wealthy and very connected family there's also also the theory out there that julia wallace was going to call him, basically try to blackmail him. Well, the theory goes is that while this he doesn't want this to happen, to ruin his fucking life, he ends up killing her. Whether that's true or not, I'm not, I really don't believe that, but that is one of the theories out there. So, that being said, we have Richard Gordon Perry, who has a lot of maybe physical evidence up against him. Personally, my theory on this is is that it if if you go by evidence means and motive you know ex-girlfriends aside that change their statements about alibis i'd say the only person that could probably really do it would be richard gordon perry just because he had opportunity he had motive you know whether it be for money whether it be for you know just straight up revenge for making him look bad uh which would be you know against wallace uh, the fact that there was no struggle, there was nothing heard, there was no signs of forced entry. I mean, we absolutely know that there's like a 95% chance that Julia Wallace knew who her attacker was. And given how the body was laid, she was not snuck up from behind. She more than likely saw the attack coming, uh, given that it was right in the corner of the couch in the fireplace, 
both of which have walls on the back sides of them. Uh, the whole Wallace theory, I really don't see it. The guy, from the personality-wise, seems pretty meek, but if the theory about her paying that guy for sex is true, that could be enough to send him over the edge. But you got to think, think too. I mean, these were 11 brutal blows to the head with a heavy, blunt object. You know, he was 52. Wallace was 52 at the time that this happened. He had one kidney. He was not a very physical man. The only thing really physical about him is that he did walk a lot. All right. So, I mean, he probably wasn't in bad shape, but he also had one kidney. You know, the guy probably didn't do push-ups every day or anything like that, but he probably wasn't in the most horrible shape. But I just don't think he had it in him to do anything like this. I mean, the guy was bone dry. I just think I think his reactions for a lot of things were just pure shock. Uh, I could definitely I could definitely see that happening. Uh, you know, going through a traumatic event like that. I mean, you just shock, man, it's shock. But other than that, I mean, there was no real evidence to actually get this guy convicted. It was just uh, basically a headhunt. They knew who they wanted to convict, and they convicted him. And I mean, I'm glad it later got appealed, but. If he did commit this, it was pretty much the perfect crime, you know, to an extent. I mean, the guy was hated afterward. He really did live, he lived the last couple of his years uh, just pretty fucking miserably. I mean, everybody hated him. He got hate mail, lost his job, ended up having to move out to the country by himself where nobody could bother him anymore. You know, another good theory is if if it's true, if the theory about the Joseph Marsden uh, character if that is true that she actually was paying him for sex that right there would be enough for me to highly consider wallace now wallace was really not known as a smart guy so i mean you know he might be able to plan something like this but we definitely know it wasn't for money you know the guy didn't actually hate his wife that we know of like i said a lot of that's theory I don't know. Maybe you can decide. You guys, you know, you guys can decide. You guys know everything I know at this point in time. Laid out all the facts. Told you about the crime scene. I mean, that's pretty much it. Me personally, I think Perry. If I was gonna, if I was a bet man, I'd bet on Perry doing it just because of the, uh, the cert. You know, just because of the coincidences. You know, it's one coincidence is fine. Two is just weird. Uh, I would like to thank uh, here at the end of the episode. Ellie, she is the one who requested this case quite a long, long time ago. And sorry it took so long. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that, I don't know, I hope that uh, I laid out the case pretty good for you. That's about all the stuff I could really find on it. And I would like to remind everybody I am on Twitter, uh, at M underscore C underscore podcast. So, you know, maybe, you know, add me on there or something. Stop by the Facebook page. I appreciate everybody stopping by there and commenting and leaving reviews and greatly appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoyed the episode and let me know what you think. I want to hear your facts. I want to hear your theories. Uh, Until next time, we will actually, next episode, we'll be talking about a uh, murder of a former NBA player from down in Memphis. This is actually a fairly recent case usually recent for the ones I cover, but it is not very well known, and there's a lot of weird shit going on in this one, so until uh, until you guys hear me next time, I'll see you on the flip side.